Section 28 of the Medici, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Medici, Volume 1, by G. F. Young. Chapter 11. Interregnum. 1494-1512. On the same day that Pietro and his family fled from Florence, Charles VIII entered Pisa, and thereupon declared that city free from Florentine yoke. The Signoria sent an embassy, which included Savonarola, to the king to protest against this action as to Pisa, and to treat with him. But the only reply they could extract was, Once in the great city all shall be arranged. Savonarola had prophesied that a foreign invader should come to chastise the states of Italy for their profligate ways. The first of those states was now beginning to discover what forms such chastisement might take. The Republic, though they had exiled Pietro owing to his inability to prevent the French king's advance, found themselves as little able to do so as he had been and eight days afterwards Charles VIII entered Florence in the style of a victorious monarch entering a conquered city, while the Florentines found themselves required to accommodate in their midst an army of 20,000 men. And to have a medieval army of another nationality thus placed was a critical business. At any moment the smallest contretemps might produce an explosion and the plunder and sack of the city. It may be judged, therefore, with what pleasure the citizens of Florence saw this army march into their streets. As this was the first standing army ever seen by Europe, and as we know something of what standing armies have become during the intervening four hundred years, it will be interesting to have a look at this first one to stand, as it were, in the crowd at the Frediano Gate on that 17th November, 1494, and watch this army as it passes into Florence. It consisted of 8,000 cavalry, the flower of the French chivalry, 5,000 Gascon infantry, 5,000 Swiss infantry, 4,000 Breton archers, 2,000 crossbowmen, and a strong train of artillery, the latter, drawn for the first time by horses instead of oxen, a new thing in that age. The general appearance of these troops has been described for us by an old chronicler who evidently watched them closely that day, and gives a vivid description of this entry into Florence. He says, The king of France entered the city at the Porta San Frediano, riding under a rich canopy borne by four knights, two on either side, and on each side of him rode his marshals. The royal bodyguard followed, consisting of a hundred of the handsomest youths of France and two hundred knights of France on foot in splendid dresses. Then came the Swiss guard with their brilliant uniforms of various colors, having halberds of burnished steel their officers wearing rich plumes on their helmets. The center consisted of the Gascons, short, light, active men, whose numbers seemed never-ending. 
After these came the cavalry, whose splendid appearance was admired by all, and in which there were to be found the most noble young men of France. They had engraved armor, mantles of richest brocade, banners of velvet embroidered with gold, chains of gold, and ornaments of gold. The cuirassiers presented a hideous appearance, with their horses looking like monsters from their ears and tails being cut quite short. Then came the archers, extraordinarily tall men from Scotland and other northern countries, and they looked more like wild beasts than men. Guicciardini, who was then a boy of twelve, speaking of the whole procession, says that it was a spectacle in itself very grand, but one for which the spectators had small liking, by reason of the dread and terror with which it filled their minds. As regards Charles the Eighth himself, the incapable youth who wielded this formidable weapon, Guicciardini says that he was short, ugly, deformed, and altogether uneducated, and in all matters that he took in hand displayed an entire want of prudence and judgment, while Philippe de Comines says that he was weak, willful, and surrounded by foolish counsellors. Such was the youth at whose mercy Florence now lay. The army was quartered about the city on the unwilling inhabitants, and Charles proceeded to the despoiled and dismantled Medici Palace, where he took up his abode. There, next day, he summoned the Signoria before him to hear the humiliating terms which he intended to impose on the city. But the ancient spirit of Florence was as strong as ever, and when these terms were read out to them, the members of the Signoria utterly refused to accept them. Whereupon the king flew into a rage and swore that if the treaty he had dictated were not forthwith signed, they should have war, that he would sound his trumpets, call out the troops, and sack the city. Upon this, one of the senators, Piero Capponi, gave that answer which passed into a Florentine proverb, If you sound your trumpets, we will sound our bells. Charles knew what that meant, for he had on the day before seen a brief example of it in connection with a false alarm. He knew that it meant the ringing of the great bell, La Vacca, which hung in the tower of the Palazzo della Signoria, and which, when it sounded out over Florence, would call out into the streets the whole male population of the city, armed and ready to fall on the French troops, scattered in the various quarters, and before they could offer any collective resistance. He would find himself in a hornet's nest. Charles reflected for a moment, and then, passing the matter off with a bad joke, gave in, and Florence was saved. A less humiliating treaty was drawn up and agreed to, though it was not a whit more satisfactory for Florence than that for agreeing to which Pietro the Unfortunate had incurred such a storm of indignation from the same men. Its chief articles were that Pisa and the fortresses of Sarzana, Sarzanello, Ripafratta, and Pietra Santa should remain in Charles's possession until the conquest of Naples was complete, and that Florence should pay him an indemnity of 120,000 ducats. And two days later, 
Charles marched his army out again and departed for Rome en route to Naples. On Charles's arrival before Rome, Pope Alexander VI took refuge in the castle of St. Angelo, but was induced to come forth and to give Caesar Borgia as a hostage, and after spending a month in Rome, Charles marched on towards Naples. Alfonso II, King of Naples, had no lack of courage or military ability. His bravery at the Battle of Otranto against the Turks had won him military renown. Nevertheless, he made no endeavor to defend his kingdom on this occasion. Fearing the strength of the French army, he fled to Sicily. And Charles VIII entered Naples on the 22nd February, 1495, as a conqueror. But while he spent his time there in triumphs and festivals, a formidable confederacy was formed to crush him, consisting of the Emperor Maximilian, Ferdinand King of Aragon, the Pope, Venice, and even Ludovico Sforza, by whose invitation he had invaded Italy. Meanwhile his army, wasted by its successes in Naples, was rapidly dwindling by disease. Charles saw no safety but in an immediate march back to France. Leaving part of his army in possession of Naples, he, in the beginning of June, started on his return march, proceeding by Rome and Siena, and hastening as much as possible. But the Allies assembled a force of 40,000 men to bar his way, awaiting him on the northern side of the Apennines. Owing to the losses by disease and the detachment left at Naples, Charles's army was reduced to 9,000 men. He reached Siena on the 18th June and Pontremoli on the 29th June. From there he crossed the Apennines by the pass of that name, an operation which took him six days. The battle which ensued was fought on the 6th July on the banks of the Taro at Fornovo, on the northern side of the Apennines. The French had the greatest difficulty in transporting their artillery over the mountains, and most of it arrived too late to take part in the battle, which, though very short, was the bloodiest that had taken place in Italy for two centuries. The Italians were entirely routed, and lost 8,000 men, including their second-in-command, Rodolfo Gonzaga, uncle of the Marquis of Mantua. The French only lost, Comin says, about a hundred men, but the Italian writers say a thousand. Charles showed much personal courage and much bad generalship. Nevertheless, the French army succeeded in driving their opponents off the field and continued their march towards Asti, though their long line of baggage, impeded by the difficulties of the mountains, for the most part fell a prey to the enemy, so that both sides claimed the victory. Charles reached Asti on the 15th July and remained there until October when he returned to France. The King of Naples soon after regained Naples, and the sole results to Charles VIII of his expedition were the debts he had incurred to meet its expenses. The superior power possessed by the new engine in war which was wielded by Charles VIII so inefficiently, was very clearly shown at Fornovo. At that battle the Allies had 40,000 men, Charles only 9,000. The latter fought under every disadvantage. They were weakened by disease, 
weary with long marches, insufficient food, and bad quarters, and had to fight as they emerged from the difficulties of a mountain pass, proverbially the position in which a force finds it hardest to bring up its full strength. On the other hand, their opponents were fresh and well cared for, and awaited the French on the banks of a river, the passage of which the latter had to force. Nevertheless, as the result of the attack which the French delivered, the Italian force suffered so severely that, though they still far outnumbered the French, no persuasion could make them rally and renew the fight. Charles's army, though less than a quarter the numerical strength of their foes, badly commanded, and fighting under every disadvantage, beat back their enemy, forced the passage of the Taro, broke through the cordon drawn between them and their objective, and continued their march, thus gaining the honor of the day, even though most of their baggage was plundered in their rear by the enemy. Fornovo was the first occasion on which a standing army was tested in battle, and the results showed very distinctly how much greater was its power than that of the kind of troops hitherto employed. This expedition of Charles VIII into Italy, though it was so barren of immediate results, had great ultimate consequences, and was a turning point in the history of Europe. Michelet says that it was no less than the revelation of Italy to the nations of the North. It ushered in that new era already mentioned, in which the northern nations were to oust the Italian states from the foremost place in the politics of Europe, a process which was accompanied by a state of almost constant war in Italy. During the eighteen years that followed, Florence sternly kept the Medici out of her territories, and foiled all schemes for their return. It was made death to be found guilty of attempting to restore that family. And in 1497, old Bernardo de Nero, who was 72 years of age, and had been three times gonfaloniere, being found guilty of this offense, was beheaded. This period, 1494 to 1512, which in a history relating to the Medici power in Florence, it is convenient to call the interregnum, and which covers the pontificates of popes Alexander VI and Julius II, was an eventful one in the history of Italy and of Europe. But Florence, her destinies no longer swayed by the family, which had known how to make their country strong and powerful, took an altogether insignificant part in these events, more so than any other state in Italy while the struggle of contending nations was taking place all round her she was entirely occupied in ignoble turmoils over domestic politics she suffered severely in consequence having to endure heavy taxation in order to pay subsidies now to one and now to another of the combatants and only just missed being captured by caesar borgia before whom she had most ignominiously to humble herself so far, therefore, as Florence is concerned, the record of this period consists of little else than internal discord and misgovernment, unceasing turmoils between rival factions, fresh constitutions formed every few months, an administration utterly corrupt, a total decline in political influence abroad, 
and anarchy, injustice, and misery at home are the prevailing features of this period. And nothing could better have vindicated the rule which the Medici had exercised than the state of things which supervened when it was withdrawn. Some have contrived even here to found a charge against the family, declaring this due to their having enervated the Florentines. It was, however, simply the reversion to those conditions which had obtained before the Medici arose, and which reappeared upon the removal of the only power which had ever been able to keep Florence free from such conflicts. During the first four years of the above period, 1494 to 1498, the chief influence in the state was exercised by Savonarola. Upon the departure of Charles VIII, one change after another in the form of government took place accompanied by constant disturbances, until at length an end to these was put for a time by Savonarola, who, in accordance with the cry of the people for a constitution on the lines of that of Venice, formed the Grand Council, comprising every citizen of twenty-nine years of age, who, or whose father, grandfather, or great-grandfather, had held one of the higher magistracies. The number of members was limited to one thousand, with a change of members every six months. Savonarola also made strenuous efforts to put down the luxury and profligacy to which the Florentines had become addicted, and for a while he succeeded. The extraordinary movement which he brought about is without a parallel. Florence, for a time, put on a Puritan garb and the effect manifested itself in many differently-minded men. Baccio della Porta became a monk in the monastery of San Marco, taking the name Fra Bartolomeo. Two of the Della Robbia family became priests. Lorenzo di Credi spent the rest of his life in the monastery of Santa Maria Novella. Botticelli became an ardent disciple of Savonarola, and would paint only pictures inspired by his sermons. Cronaca, the celebrated storyteller, would talk only of Savonarola. Michelangelo, to the end of his life, retained a vivid remembrance of the powerful voice and impassioned gestures of the great preacher, and pondered over his sermons in his old age. Among the many notable scenes which the Piazza della Signoria has witnessed, None is more remarkable than the strange bonfire for the destruction of the worldly allurements, the vanities, which took place in 1497, at the time of the carnival, in the midst of a concourse of the entire city. Harford, in his Life of Michelangelo, says, A pyramidal scaffold was erected opposite the palace of the Signoria. At its base were to be seen false hair, false beards, masquerading dresses, rouge pots, cards and dice, mirrors and perfumery, beads and trinkets of various sorts. Higher up were arranged books and drawings, busts and portraits of the most celebrated Florentine beauties. Even Fra Bartolomeo was so carried away by the enthusiasm as to bring his life academy studies. Lorenzo di Credi, another devoted follower of Savonarola, did the same. 
The signoria looked on from a balcony. Guards were stationed to prevent unholy thefts. And as the fire rose, there was a burst of chants and the singing of the Te Deum to the sound of trumpets and the clanging of bells. But eventually the people got tired of a life bereft of their favorite vanities, and about the same time Savonarola's preaching, which had hitherto concerned itself with the errors of Florence, began to thunder against the far greater iniquities of Rome, and to urge for a reformation of the Church. And it was indeed high time for such a reformation, for the state of things at Rome was arousing universal indignation. Alexander VI, Rodrigo Borgia, who was Pope from 1492 to 1508, has been styled by Mosheim the Nero among popes, and the conjunction in him of shameless greed, perfidy, cruelty, and licentiousness brought the papacy to the lowest moral depth it had touched since the dark age of the 10th century. His politics were governed solely by one consideration, that of acquiring, by whatever means, as many of the minor states as possible, in order to form a sovereignty for his son, Caesar Borgia, called by Ranke, a virtuoso in crime. Such being the character of the Pope at the time, an earnest reformer like Savonarola could scarcely fail to give voice to what was becoming the sentiments of all Europe regarding the papal court. His sermons began to denounce its iniquities and to press for a general council to reform the Church. Neither Alexander VI nor Caesar Borgia had the smallest intention of suffering the fate which had overtaken Pope John XXIII eighty years before, and one such sermon delivered in Rome would have promptly ended Savonarola's life. But in Florence he could not be so easily got at. The Pope did his utmost to silence him and to get him into his power, but for some time unsuccessfully, he being too popular with the Florentines. But Florence no longer had the strong government and united people which she had possessed when she hung an archbishop and defied a pope who attempted to stir up strife within her walls. Her condition now was just the reverse, and in a city torn by so many factions, and with a government become both weak and corrupt, it was easy to create a party hostile to the stern preacher of reform and ready to perform the Pope's work. So that at length, in 1498, Alexander VI was able to send emissaries to Florence, who soon persuaded the Signoria to act as his agents in a crime which has brought permanent infamy both on the Pope who ordered it and on the government which carried it out. Meanwhile, Savonarola had written letters to various sovereigns, pressing them to assemble a general council, so that the Pope was more anxious than ever to have him put out of life with all speed. It was unfortunate for Savonarola that just at this juncture, Charles VIII, on whom he chiefly relied, though it was reliance on a broken reed, was on the 5th April, 1498, accidentally killed at the castle of Amboise by striking his head against the top of a low doorway. 
he was succeeded by his distant cousin, Louis Twelfth. On the 7th April, a challenge by the rival community of the Franciscans to an ordeal by fire, to which Savonarola weakly agreed, and for which elaborate preparations were made, though the Signoria never intended it to be carried out, served the purpose of destroying his popularity with the people, who were furious when, at the last moment, the ordeal was vetoed. Accordingly, on the 9th April, Savonarola received a summons from the Signoria to surrender himself into their hands. The friars of San Marco refused to allow him to be taken from them to what all knew meant torture and death, and the church and monastery were furiously attacked by the troops of the Signoria during a whole day and bravely defended. In the evening, however, on the troops forcing their way into the church, Savonarola refused to allow further bloodshed, and, after taking a sorrowful farewell of the brethren, surrendered himself to the troops. He was taken to the Palazzo della Signoria, imprisoned in the cell called the Alberghettino, and day after day subjected to torture, the Pope sending frequent messages to the Signoria to wring something from him which might serve as a ground for putting him to death. Nevertheless, this was a difficult task, one, however, to which those who wished to stand well with the Pope turned all their evil ingenuity, with the result that the so-called trial became a mockery of justice. Seldom has there been a blacker page in the proceedings of any government than that relating to Savonarola's trial and condemnation. The criminal court by which in the ordinary course he should have been tried, the eight, not being supposed to be sufficiently hostile to him, had new members appointed to it, though the period of office of their predecessors had not expired. When, however, it became apparent that even this would not suffice to attain the desired result, a special court was constituted, composed of seventeen commissioners, all of them Savonarola's avowed enemies. Even one of these, Bartolo Zatti, when he learned the nature of the work expected of him, refused to serve, declaring that he would take no part in a murder. Savonarola was subjected to successive trials, and during these for a period of about sixteen days was tortured daily. Once he was placed on the rack fourteen times in a single day. Nevertheless, nothing could be proved against him or wrung from him which his judges could twist into an admission of either treason or heresy. So his enemies had to resort to forgery. A miscreant named Ser Cecone, a notary who had said to one of the judges, If no case exists, one must be invented, was employed to take down the victim's replies while under torture. And this change in the arrangements produced the required results. In refutation of the supposition that on this last occasion Savonarola falsified his previous replies, Mr. Hyatt says as follows. On the 19th April, a document purporting to be a report of Savonarola's replies to the examiners was signed by him. It is probable that his signature was obtained by a trick, but, be this as it may, 
it is certain that the signed deposition had been falsified, or, as one of the judges euphemistically put it, for a good purpose somewhat had been omitted from, and somewhat added to it. On the strength of this garbled report, many writers have said that he broke down under torture, and even Professor Villari gives a reluctant assent to this view and offers an elaborate apology for his hero. But as evidence against Savonarola, the document is not worth the paper it was written on. It is in part admittedly fictitious, and which part of it are additions and which alterations, and what has been omitted, it is impossible to discover. Everything tends to show that Savonarola, in spite of his physical infirmities, displayed on the rack heroic fortitude. On the 19th May, the papal commissioners charged with the final proceedings arrived in Florence. Nardi states that their instructions were to put Savonarola to death were he even another Saint John the Baptist. On 20th May and the two following days, Savonarola underwent before them his third mock trial, being examined under worse torture than ever. The results of this final examination were never signed or made public, the trial being thus practically left unfinished. Nothing had been elicited from him proving his guilt of heresy or crime. Nevertheless, on the evening of the 22nd May, after many days of torture, after every kind of fraud and injustice had been put in force, and as the result of a so-called trial not even legally completed, Savonarola, whose only crime was his denunciation of the vices of the Borgian papacy and his appeals for its reformation, was condemned to death. And also the other two friars of San Marco, who had been tried with him, Fra Domenico and Fra Silvestro. On the following morning, 23rd May, 1498, the three companions were brought out of the Palazzo della Signoria onto the Ringhiera, and after being subjected to various insults, were conducted to the scaffold. And on the very spot where the bonfire of the vanities had taken place, the reformer, who had a short time before been worshipped by Florence, was hanged and burnt in the presence of the whole city. Thus did Florence show before the eyes of Europe what the rule of the Medici had been to her. Such a crime as the above would have been as impossible under the rule of Lorenzo the Magnificent as under any government of the present day. In this episode we seem to see a totally different Florence from that of twenty years before. And instead of a united people, strong in their sense of justice, defying a pope even though he was backed by numerous allies, we see a divided people and a corrupt and subservient government ready at a pope's command to set at naught every principle of justice and to employ methods from which every honest Florentine revolted. The defiance of all law, the disgraceful frauds, the corruptibility of the judges, and the faction-fighting through which alone the pope was able to achieve his object, all showed 
how greatly Florence had in only four years deteriorated through the loss of that rule under which she had, during the previous sixty years, made herself great and respected. The crime of Savonarola's judicial murder is the strongest possible vindication of the rule which had been established by the Medici. End of section 28